Mana 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 this is Social Discasting. Welcome to Social Discasting, a podcast where my guests and I discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves. I am Brandon, aka Brandon. Hope you're well. My guest is a consultant pharmaceutical physician specializing in strategic medical affairs leadership and a freelance health, sports, and medical writer. Please welcome Joshi. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Brandon, for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate your time. First question that's always the fun one. How are you? Uh, we, I mean, we were talking about this just before we started recording. Uh, it's been a, it's been one of those days, a very long, non-stop manic day. But I guess otherwise, all right, given, as you say, the hellscape that we're currently uh, living <laughs> yeah. in. I guess the not not funny bit, but the problem with all of this that's happening is it's happening on top of all sorts of uh, other kind of uh, you know nonsense in terms of you know politics and things like that. So it's just yeah. not not a great time, really, to be honest. No, I I completely understand that. I feel like I'm oscillating between crises at this point. You know, it, it, and individually, one is kind of unfathomable and overwhelming, let alone collectively. So I feel like we're all in some form of some like very level of shock at this point because it's just too much for us to process. You know, it's just so much. But I do want to ask you in general, just how I know that obviously our, our lives have been as you would expect, deeply affected by everything COVID-related, and rightfully so, considering just the magnitude of, of everything happening. But how has this affected your job, or has it at this point? Yeah, no, I think it, that's a good question, right? Because, you know, a lot of people went on furlough in the UK, which is which is fine because they didn't, you know, have work. You, you know, if you work in a restaurant and you're on lockdown, there's nothing yeah. you can do, right? So I was the opposite. We We went the other way and in terms of my workload so i've been whilst i've been working from home i've been managing various challenges uh covid related but then also non-covid related as well it's just been one of those years in where it is everything that could go wrong has gone wrong yeah. and the, uh, and then a uh, then a worldwide pandemic was thrown on top right so yeah for me it's affected things massively my workload's massively increased uh, and it's made things very difficult in in certain in certain regards obviously not being able to meet up face to face with team members and, and things like that so i mean you'll you'll have the same in the US but in the UK i was classified as a key worker with the work that i'm doing in kind of like medicine supply and continuity of supply as well as some of the work my company does on covid trials so that meant i could go into the office at certain points um mm-hmm. but Cho- chose not to simply because it, it just there was no need to risk take that risk because the stuff that I'm working on can be done remotely some of the stuff not as effectively and it takes a lot longer I mean if you imagine you're trying to I don't know brainstorm over something or you're trying to edit you know you're trying to get around a, let's say a, a, a study design protocol or, or whatever it is that you're trying to do it's much easier to do that face to face right because you know you can sort of just bounce around the room when you're doing it virtually. It, it's very difficult. So yeah. any anything that requires kind of collaboration and, and things like that is difficult. Although we have learned to adapt with all the various virtual tools. So yeah, it, it's been ch- it's been challenging. And on top of that, obviously with the pandemic, you know, we we, we had issues with childcare. You know, schools closing, nurseries closing, 
we did have a nanny, but then she she went back to New Zealand right at the beginning of lockdown in the UK. So I've been juggling that as well with the three kids. So all of this stuff just it just kind of just adds each little bit of challenge just adds. So so yeah, it's been certainly one of the most challenging years. I mean, not just for me, obviously, but it is very challenging. No, but I know what you mean. Like um, we've all had to have this these different forms of like adaptation to everything happening and just uh, because of the massive, as you would expect, ripple effect that, that was caused by this. But admittedly, like all being done through the prism of, oh, this won't be that long. Yeah. Or thinking that, you know, and it seemed like a reasonable thought, but in retrospect, it seemed it was wildly naive because it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel like anything's changed from a progress standpoint. Like it's fits and starts at best because I don't know, all I can do is speak for here. And it has been strictly reactive, if mm. you could even call it reactive, because that would imply there's been reaction, because I don't even know if that's the case in some instances. It's just it's just unfathomable at this point, the way it's been, quote unquote, handled. Yeah, no, I, I think I can relate to that. I think so. I mean, generally speaking, I, I mean, this is a massive generalization in terms of how we approach things as a medic. Mm-hmm. But I tend to think in sort of most cases in uh, if I think in my experience if you hit something hard and far hard early on you get a better outcome in the long term uh, and I'm talking like disease outcome right so yeah you know I've worked in um, with MS drugs in the past and it's kind of the general philosophy that with one let's say group of experts is you know hit hard early on yes those drugs are maybe have more side effects but actually long your outcomes are better longer term and as we produced data it started to kind of demonstrate that obviously some patients don't want those drugs they want the less kind of side effect what let the drugs with less side effects but they're then less effective so the parallel is with this was for me was as soon as you as soon as you start seeing cases you go hard you go you know you go in you go hard you go fast you shut things down, you get your test trace going. That That is kind of what I would have done. But it, in the UK, it's been very reactive. People were very blasé at the beginning. You know, the prime minister going around joking about say, shaking COVID patients' hands and, yeah. oh, you know, nothing's, nothing's uh, wrong. And then you start to see the reality as things start ramping up. And then, you know, in the UK, we were behind other countries in terms of what was going on, even though we had the warning. And, and as you say, it's been very reactive. And in some cases, kind of going, well, actually, have you done anything in those areas? It, it isn't really reactive. So I have been very vocal about kind of how I disagree with how things have been managed and the political game that's being played. Uh, you know, you know, I, I get that you can't shut down a country completely for, you know, indefinitely. But if you get to the point where you're shutting a country down, you should use that time to then develop that, develop a strategy to make sure you minimize the risk of having to do it again. Right. Absolutely. And and we just haven't seen that in the UK. And, and from what I hear in the US, it, it's it's um, sporadic at best. Right. Uh, so the leadership is weak. The leadership is politically driven and power driven uh, instead of uh, driven by what's best for the people Um, you know so when you've got this lockdown instead of doing you know developing a robust test and trace test trace isolate you know system and find you know actually even finding these cases uh, uh, you know that's the first pillar 
The second pillar is building capacity in your hospitals, not just for the additional COVID patients, because the additional capacity, you know, you've got that initial influx of all these patients coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so other thing, other services do invariably stop because they you just get overrun. But there needed to have been a strategy for building up capacity, not just in that sense, but also in the sense that how are we going to get things back to, back to a kind of a a more normal state where your usual services are trying are running as best as they can whilst we're also dealing with the potential of a, a second wave or you know further covid patients and again that hadn't been done in the uk there was a big fanfare about some of these kind of emergency hospitals that were put up uh, nightingale hospital was one of them and then the farce of it all was once they were up and running they weren't actually running because nobody knew how to how to refer patients there and then there, there was like well you know if you want to send a patient there the hospital has to send staff with the patient and you sort of go well hang on that how does that work you're now taking away staff from the patient so there was no strategy right in that yeah. second there's no strategy in the first pillar no strategy in the second pillar and then the third pillar is how are we going to exit out of this into to make sure we recover e- the economy as well right so i'm not someone who's saying we should shut the country down indefinitely and keep everything closed and that's it deal with it because you just can't live like that right nobody Mm -hmm. wants a second lockdown i don't want a second lockdown as much as i advocated for the first you know nobody wants that second lockdown but if you need it it's the fault of people in charge because they haven't put these measures in place there's no strategy and this is the issue with the leadership and i think in the countries where the response has been poor that is usually why right the strategy is driven by personal benefit economic benefit and short-term benefit not actually understanding how you know that long-term benefit so it's just i mean that it's been a ridiculous series of missteps and lies and 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 just you know handing out contracts to mates of theirs and things like that it's been i mean i am shocked at the stuff that i've read it's been really poor to your point though it seems like it's just like i can only obviously speak for hours and even then i'm hesitant to do so because i mean i guess ultimately what do i know but it just seems like our plans over here have been devoid of reason and empathy yeah and it's people that are cynically and frankly disgustingly taking advantage of this situation and figuring out what they can gain from this because they're not you know because these are people that are that are so powerful that they create their own realities and this doesn't affect them and it's really I don't know. I'm a pretty optimistic person, but it really just kind of shakes my faith in humanity on some level to see that because I guess, you know, I'm just bright eyed and bushy tailed and like, this is not, no, this is not how this should be going and how this should not be a thing that people do. But it's very frustrating. What it's, it's frustrating, but what is, what is interesting? I I, I may, well, maybe not interesting. I mean, it, it blows my mind that people are like this, but they, they'll still, stand by and defend what's happening right and and you, yes. you've seen it recently with trump and the the kind of when his tax returns were revealed and he's only paid 750 dollars in the last year and he's supposed to be a man of the people and all that kind of stuff and you see that with his supporters going oh well he's smart he gets away with it and he's sort of going well hang on you might be whatever you're doing you might be the manager of a just a small you know i don't know manager of an office or yeah. you know working in a mcdonald's or whatever it is you're doing you're still paying more tax than $750 a year, right? And, and and somehow you're sat there defending this guy who is a billionaire and 
he is paid less than you and and i just can't get my head around it and similar to this right similarly to that in the you know you just hear people going oh they're doing the best they can and i go well are they i don't understand how you can think that because i mean going back to your point about empathy that is what has been missing right the countries that have done the best are the ones that have acted with empathy and compassion right so care for their citizens yeah well yeah exactly so so the the previous leader of the opposition and by the way i think all the politicians in the uk are utterly weak i have no kind of i'm not invested in in a side i'm certainly invested against the current government in the way they've handled this uh, uh, pandemic same over here but the leader of the uh, the previous leader of the opposition was it was you know i could see it seemed like a you know his name Jer- Jeremy Corbyn. I don't know if you guys you know, will be aware of yeah. him, but he's um, a he's a fair. You know he seemed like a decent guy that just really wanted the best for people. Yes, you know I thought he was a fairly weak leader. I'm I'm not impressed by him. But that on its own, the fact that he cared, ge- seemed to genuinely care about people, would have meant meant that his if he was leading the COVID response, it would have been better. I I firmly believe that because mm-hmm. there's you know if you have that empathy, you're not going to stand for one death, let alone. 40,000 or 60,000 or in the US you've got two more than 200,000. I yeah, mean these people numbers are, are ridiculous. Yeah, and, and and the thing that people don't understand when they see these numbers is you know you hear things are oh, they would have died anyway or they would you know that you know blah 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 blah. This is additional risk. So in 2019 we started off the year with let's let's put a number to it a million a hundred things that could kill you that year, right? And everyone's mm-hmm. walking around there's all this risk. You could get hit by a bus could get struck by lightning you could get diagnosed with something you could get acute appendicitis and it's not treated or whatever whatever it is all of these risks are baseline risk that you're walking around with and some of us the baseline risk is higher because we're not looking after ourselves let's say this on top of all of those hundred reasons covid is now just an extra reason on top and i think people don't get that it doesn't replace one of the other reasons right you've now got an extra risk on top it's additional risk to what you're doing so when you're saying things like oh you know these people would have died in the next six months anyway well you kind of don't know that for a start and secondly you know this is something that's now added on to everyone's uh, level of risk and for older people it's higher and so i just don't get people's thinking around this i mean i say people obviously there are loads of people who do follow sure. and, and understand and whatever but it, i can't get my head around people like i mean we were talking about that mp earlier on today so one of the ministers felt ill, thought she might have COVID, got a test while she's waiting for the results, travels in a six and a half, seven hour journey on a train from Scotland to London, gets a positive result sent to her by email and then gets back on a train to go back to Scotland. So you're saying Good God. I know. The, the guidance is if you've got symptoms, you think you've got COVID, stay at home, don't spread it. And what this person is, not only has she spread it, she's gone on public transport. It's literally the worst place to be if you've got it, right? You've now travelled from Scotland to London, which is essentially the length of the UK, like basically the length of the UK, right? You can't go much further than that on a train in, in, in the UK. And obviously people the train stops people get off and get on and all of these things and then she's walking around and 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 nobody else knows that she's done this and and she knew she had these symptoms and she and she thinks that an apology is is okay like how many people has she put at risk um you know know, that's criminal what she did yeah 
I, I just I, I don't understand the thought process, right? Because if mm-hmm. you know, and and going in like towards the beginning of the pan pan towards the beginning of lockdown, so we were now aware that things are happening, and then we got in went into lockdown. About a week later, my father in law went into hospital, and my sister in law, right? So my sister in law has has an autoimmune uh, kidney disease, right? Mm-hmm. So. And she was in like stage, final stages of renal failure, basically transplant list. And she actually now has a, just got a transplant the other week, which oh, is amazing. Thank God. That's awesome. Yeah. But she was, she was admitted into hospital with COVID, was in there for just under two weeks. And my father-in-law was admitted and he was in there for just about, or just over two weeks. And he, we actually got a call from the hospital saying, uh, you know, one night saying, oh, you know, we're not sure if he's going to make it tonight. And we're sort of going, well, can we come and see him? No, you can't. Mm-hmm. And then you just obviously got the family in tears and stuff. And, so, and, and you know, it, it, it's stressful. And, and having experienced that, and then all, uh, he, he recovered and he's back home and stuff. But having yeah, experienced I mean... that and then seeing the numbers of people that have died and hearing stories from people who have, you know, who, who know people have died and things like that. I just cannot understand the thought process where you would want to be responsible or potentially responsible for even one admission to hospital in a journey from you know a seven hour journey each way right the thought process it i i can't get my head around it i can't imagine can you imagine like i've hit a, a squirrel before and i felt bad for weeks after that happened and and i'm not minimizing for the record a squirrel i just the idea of killing anything let alone a person let alone infinitesimal amounts of people in general you know because your actions it feels like and i can only speak obviously for here but it feels like there is a wide swath of people that their empathy, if it ever does, only kicks in when they know somebody who's had it, when they're directly affected by it. Otherwise, it's just out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And it's just this pattern of like, you know, I'm all right. It's all good. I'm OK. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter what happens to other people. I'm OK. Right. And this selfish attitude as long as you're okay everything then nothing else really matters and and it's kind of rife in the population but at a politician level and i like i said earlier i think they're weak the politicians in this country are really they're just they there's a real dearth of talent but it's these guys are driven by you know self-interest and and that's the issue we have at play here you've got people who have been put in charge driven by self-interest driven by power driven by helping their mates you know like again in the uk this is an example i mean it's not directly it's not related to covid but you know one of the ministers in charge here of brexit in, in, in he was in charge of brexit and they wanted to put in place a ferry system to get supplies over for med medical supplies over from your eu into the uk and the company that he contracted to do that work uh, should it be needed is a company that doesn't even own any ships and was only like it was only mm-hmm. like a, a like a few months old and yeah. then there are like links back to some donor here or something like that the person it's like a shell company yeah. to be able to siphon that, that well fund. yeah and, and and the person who's currently in charge of the uk test and trace and track system has no background in public health has no background in health i think what i saw was she's she managed a racetrack so like horse racing and previously was a, a, in marketing not to do with anything to do with health tele telecoms company and things like that and when you look when you join the dots the horse racing business and her 
business partner or a husband or something like that had donated into the government. And I mean, when you start joining those dots, you sort of go, well, where's her? What is she? How is this person qualified to run this? And then yeah. they privatize. They privatize the test and trace system. So in the U- in the UK, we've got a full public health, right? It's uh, a national health uh, service, yeah, which is NHS, right? yeah, the NHS, which um, you know does all the public health stuff, everything like that. You've got NHS England, but somehow they've privatized the testing and trace test and trace and system, and no, and it's gone to it's just it doesn't work, right? I have a so I was telling you, I was telling you about childcare earlier on, and we've been struggling, but we finally got um well we can't afford nurseries for all of the kids and stuff like that right so we Mm. get we get an au pair in who stays with us and helps out really and she arrived from spain you know isolated and stuff and then we went and i paid to get a private test and the private test was with the same company that does all the nhs tests and stuff but with the nhs testing you have to be eligible before you can get one private test you can just pay for it and you can go and get it and it turned out to be with the same company they lost her test, didn't even tell us until I chased up to say what was the result. And they were, oh, we lost it. And I was, so I was like, what the hell? And they've lost, they basically lost a huge batch of them. And you sort of go, what about all these other people that you've lost? And they have no way of tracking whose test they lost, obviously, because they've lost the tests and the tests yeah. have the labels on them. So there's a whole, even if it's 50 or 20 people or whatever it is, number of people that they were processing these tests for there's a whole bunch of people who were tested and they lost the test and you're sort of going this is this is it's ridiculous right and it's stories like that all over the place you know i I know somebody who wait had to travel 250 miles to get a test because they couldn't access one in the area Uh, we had to travel for a private test even when we were paying for it it was a thing about 400 pounds which i thought was ridiculous i know how much these tests cost but anyway 400 pounds to get it done and um we had to travel for a private test 60 miles it's not a lot i mean 60 miles is is, is about it's an hour and a half or so right so it's not it's not crippling right when, but you have and, to work to get this test, and then you're yeah, paying exa- exactly. an exorbitant amount for this test. Yeah, and it's like the idea of you know that I don't know. Call me crazy, but public health is a human right. Yeah, and everybody should be healthy, and then we go from there. I, I don't think this is terribly revelatory, and yet it seems to be an increasingly revelatory one in a world where everything's privatized, and you have to pay out the ass to be able to just be even with everyone else from a health standpoint. Yeah, I did want to ask you, by the way. Mm-hmm. Are there any misconceptions, just anything that you see about COVID that particularly annoys you as somebody just with a background of in science and, and medicine that, uh, that you kind of want to dispel for people? So, I mean, there's a few, right? The, the big okay. one is obviously some people saying, oh, it's all a big hoax, right? I mean, that's yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah. You, who's, you know, are you going to shut down the entire world for a hoax? I, I don't know about that. So, I mean, I'm not going to go into all the arguments as why. Sure. I mean, if this, if this turns out to be a hoax in my lifetime and I find out, I'll, I mean, I'll put my hands up. Like, I got done because this was ridic- is a ridiculously good one, right? But yeah. some of the other stuff around all the masks and don't wear a mask, you know, that's one that kind of annoyed me. And actually, I, I, you know, what? I'll do it on a timeline. The first one that annoyed you was the hydroxychloroquine ones, right? Yeah. Um, because the, the, the first paper that was published on that, I read it and I just went, this is nothing. There's nothing here that says to me that this drug does anything. And, and it... But it gained traction because the media picked up on it 
and and then it, and it just spiraled and then obviously trump had his thing he's oh, i'm just taking hydroxychloroquine for fun and you're kind of going well you probably shouldn't because it causes cardiac arrhythmias and things like that that was one that annoyed me because it anyone who knows anything about who knew anything about like drug development and how you test these drugs and how you te- um, run these studies could just read that and go no that it, there's nothing there it and at the time i didn't say oh no it doesn't work what i said was mm-hmm. This doesn't prove anything. It doesn't. It doesn't show us anything. Yeah. So that was one that annoyed me. And then, obviously, in the end, we got definitive proof that actually it doesn't work, and and in fact may cause issues. Right. And suddenly, that's all died away, hasn't it? And yet, for a good long time, you had news outlets, and I think in the US, you got Fox that was pushing it, and obviously Trump was pushing it. And yeah, suddenly, it was a major that's major narrative. Yeah. yeah, and people were dying because they were drinking the other kind of chloroquine, the fish tank cleaner. I read about that, and you know, I mean, yeah. that's just daft. But it is because of the amount of publicity it got. So that was one that annoyed me massively. The other one is the stuff around the vaccines, right? Oh no, let, I'll take a time. The, the 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 next one that I kind of started getting to me was really annoyed me was the fact that in the well in the UK they started talking about herd immunity, right? Yeah. Uh, or just let it ravage let it go through the population that's not a strategy right you know historically you kind of achieve herd immunity through vaccination you know that's the optimal way without you know that way you don't actually kill all the people that are at high risk so that that one kind of annoyed me people didn't understand it they were going on about it talking about it yeah it became a buzz term that really meant nothing to anyone yeah and it's still a discussion point right i'm seeing it all the time and I think people don't understand that or they choose to ignore the fact that, yeah, you could just allow it to go through the entire population and loads of people will die, but you'd achieve some kind of level of immunity. However, what people are not getting, and this is the next thing that riles me up, they talk about deaths and that's bad enough, right? People are going, oh, mm-hmm. whatever number of deaths. And then they'll they'll go, oh, but it's then they'll compare the stats to some particularly bad year of influenza, right? What they don't talk about is the long-term effects of those in patients who do recover. So yeah. t- loads of people end up in ICU, right? And even those out of those, they do rec- some, uh, quite a few recover. But even there are loads of studies with established, this is an established principle of ICU admission. The longer you are in ICU, the longer it takes to recover and the higher risk you have of permanent long-term effects, right? Because you're ventilated. That's not a mm-hmm. natural way to, you know, you don't breathe. That's not how you breathe. This is yeah. a machine breathing for you and all the other stuff. And we're not even talking that long term. We're still only really, what, eight months into understanding what's going on. Yeah. Um, but where there's already established cases of let's cardiomyositis, which is the inflammation of your kind of heart cells, basically. That's just that you get that. I'm not saying everyone gets it, but that is a long term effect of what, of what this virus can do. Then there's long term mm-hmm. effects on the lungs with uh, like fibrosis, which is a hardening of the lungs. And then actually even there are cases of retinal disease, right? Long-term retinal impact of of COVID, which is one that is interesting. Not sure what the mechanism for that is. So we don't know enough about this virus for people to just go, oh, it's just a bad case of the flu, right? So yeah. that that's another thing that, that winds me up. And finally, I touched on this a few times before backtracking, uh, is, is the vaccines and people going, oh, we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year. We'll have a vaccine in three, four months. We'll have a vaccine in, and then everyone can have one. And, and and this is kind of one where I have got some insight, right, given my line of work. And yes, or I mean, most of it I, I've got insight into. But, you know, we run clinical trials and they don't, to do to run robust clinical trials takes 
it depending on the disease area doesn't it's not it's not a it's not an easy thing to do right and to say that we'll have so that to say we'll have a vaccine in 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 less than 12 months i would be very cautious about taking that vaccine i'm not saying don't take vaccines and i'm not saying yes. yeah don't take any vaccine that comes to market i'm saying that I would look at how it came to market because when you see you've got people like Trump promising to accelerate um, vaccine development and get things out to people, that concerns me. What is reassuring is the companies that are developing these vaccines and the regulators that that basically govern the industry, you know, are robust. They are uh, the, the regulations and uh, are you know as they're more stringent than pretty much any other industry in the world right so it's it's difficult to fudge things and but when you do fudge them and it it gets through that's why the fines are so massive when it does happen so i'm reassured by that i just would be cautious so i wouldn't be cautious about the vaccine itself i'd look at kind of how it got brought to market if we say for example someone announced next week that oh we've got a vaccine i'd want to know right what how did you get a vaccine how have you tested it and how did you get it to market so quickly without anyone knowing right yeah so it's like the russian one where they started just handing oh there were rumors that they were handing it out uh and you're sort of going okay uh i wouldn't take that vaccine right because it's just not gone through a full development cycle the other thing is whilst we can accelerate certain parts of development there are aspects of drug development that you can't accelerate. You just have to wait for the things to happen. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's just how it works. So, you know, the average development time for a vaccine when I last looked, I uh, think was around seven years. I think the general, when you look at the ones that have been fast tracked, the average time is around four years. So some have come a little bit quicker than that. So when you think about that, You've really got to ask hard questions about ones that are come, if, if someone brings one out to market in eight months, right? Uh, and it, it becomes a political tool as well. And then alongside that is the manufacturing. You can't, you know, you, you may have a vaccine. Can you match, manufacture it to scale? And that's another part of development because it's not just manufacturing it to scale, but manufacturing it to a high quality consistently at scale while minimizing any safety impact of the manufacturing process or the excipients mm-hmm. you use in the formulation or whatever it is that you're however you're bringing it out so i think there i look at it with caution but one thing that i am amazed by is just the amount of innovation right the companies coming together working together my company opened up its entire back catalog of r&d which is unheard of oh wow okay i mean not just for public consumption like you could if you're a researcher you could apply to have a look at um the date the data right so, so there's like it, a lot of increased transparency that's come out from this yes yeah i guess so in that in that in that case but yeah there will be because you'll you'll i have to say that the the industry is fairly transparent or it should be because that's what the law states right and that's kind of one of the areas where i work it's not it's not necessarily the transparency piece it's the sharing bit so i I guess one thing is if you've got a failed drug let's say you're developing a medicine it doesn't work in a certain area you would release that data in terms of the the the, like publications and, and stuff but you because you're not submitting it for a, a for an approval for use you don't submit your entire data package right because it doesn't need to be seen because you're no longer going to develop it so that kind okay. of stuff isn't necessarily released uh, to regulators or anything like that but 
that's the type of thing that people have been looking at going well it didn't work in this area but it might work in this in, in with covid so let's have a look at it and things like that have started happening uh, and and there's companies working together like think uh, gsk and astrazeneca i think are developing a vaccine together and there are other companies out there doing their bits so yeah there's been a lot more of a collaborative effort i would say uh, with with these companies and i think some of the the science is unbelievable like the rapid research being done is 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 amazing and yeah i am impressed by that and and obviously it's because we couldn't go and carry on doing all the other clinical studies right because they're all shut down but it's um it's been if we're looking at it from a purely scientific nerd perspective which is what i am it's been really it's been super interesting obviously it's not purely scientific and stuff and and i'd rather it didn't even happen but Sure. In, in in just that science piece, it is it's really interesting. There's a lot of really cool stuff stuff happening. Yeah, but to your point, like it's the fear of of them getting their head their heads be the first, be the first, be the first, as opposed to being right. And all of the infrastructure and how complicated it is. I mean, obviously, to put it lightly, to produce a vaccine, let alone one, especially with something such as COVID, but then to actually administer it on such a in general, let alone on such a grand scale. I can't imagine any of that individually, you know, each section of that logistically, let alone collectively to do that, especially when this is such a, it's such, I don't know if the word aggressive thing that we've not in our lifetimes that I, maybe I'm speaking out of my ass encountered before. Yeah. I mean, aggressive in the sense that it spreads quickly. Right. And we've got, yeah. um, we've just got better communication uh, not communication well yeah communication but like physical communication where we've got because yeah. we just every part of the world is connected physically now so that's that's why obviously they have been much more aggressive in terms of fatality or mortality rates um uh, uh, viruses and infectious diseases in the past but it's just the way in which this has spread so quickly and and actually when you, when you see the early reports we're kind of better understanding it now. So if you remember, there was a whole, for a while, there was a huge amount of kerfuffle around ventilators and supply of ventilators because that was the traditional way of dealing with this type of respiratory failure. But when you look, when I saw, um, when I spoke to friends and I saw some reports, there was a very, this was a very atypical presentation, right? These patients came in and sometimes they looked kind of perfectly fine. But when you did the, tests on them their blood oxygen levels were super low and it just didn't make sense um and there there was just a lot of weird things happening with it and and when you look as we sort of learned more it was it wasn't just on attacking the lungs which uh you're essentially your the flu virus doesn't just attack the lungs it lungs it can do other stuff as well but that's where it kind of concentrates stuff that it's its efforts um but this it goes for a different receptor, which is kind of prominent in loads of other areas and including your red blood cells. And, um, you know, we talked about um, other organ damage like your heart and, and things like that. So as people started to learn, you know, they started to develop better strategies for for um, treating these patients. But when I, when I heard about these um, cases and when I was talking to my friends who were working like directly you know, they want to say on the front line, but it's not really, you know, I don't want to use war analogies because sure. they, they annoy me. But, you know, they're working directly in the hospitals with these patients. 
they were saying they just it's just they've never seen anything like it and they you know there were patients that they just didn't know what to do for and these are some of the smartest people i know working and they're respiratory consultants and they they know what they're doing and they're scared they were scared of it for a while because they just had didn't have a clue mm-hmm. um so that in that regard it is aggressive in, in you know, as as I think we've learned how to manage it better, you'll see that second waves, when they do come, they won't hit, hit the peak of the first wave for probably two reasons. One, obviously, the first wave came after a period of us all being normal, right? We're just out and about. Yeah. Uh, two, because the highest risk in the population, um, without wanting to be crass, the highest risk in the population have got it and you know a lot of them did die unfortunately and 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 they are no longer in the population so i'm not saying it's been through the entire population but that will have lowered it and finally we also have better understanding of how to manage this uh and and certainly in the uk one thing that they did do well actually although this (laughs) amazing wasn't run by the government though it was funded by the government was this really massive uh multi-arm study a really cool study design if a study design could be cool um (laughs) you know i am a bit of a nerd so it's a a really cool design and and it was that was the trial that definitively said that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work but then it it demonstrated that systemic corticosteroids do add survival benefit which was, again, and one of, I think that was the first definitive thing. And what was great about that is these are really readily available, cheap drugs. Uh, yes. So, you know, that was, that's really cool as well. So as we're developing these strategies uh, or better understanding of how to manage these patients, your, your, your death rate will come down, your survival rate will go up. But the problem is we don't know what the long-term impact is. So, so just because you survive doesn't mean everything is going to be okay. Um, yeah. And there's loads of cases about out there about um, athletes and young healthy people getting these getting COVID and, and just six months down the line still having issues with it. So yeah, it's it, it's scary, but we're we're getting we're getting there. Yeah, and uh, and to your point, like yeah, it's been eight months, and granted, that does feel at least on my end like an absolute blur. Like time feels like more of a concept than ever, but that's still nothing. You know, it's still very early days and yeah and it's a it's a long arduous process it's all just so much it's just so much and that feels so like i'm minimalizing or trivializing it but it's just all so much to process yeah it, it's a i mean it's huge right there's so much information yes. that's just coming out and this is what's it's really impressive but then what you need what we need to be careful of even in sort of in the scientific community is stuff that gets released but isn't you know, they go onto these preprint servers so that they can be released early. But the problem with that is the media get hold of it. The idea of the preprint server yeah. is to put it out there as quickly as possible because it's new information. But then it allows other researchers and and people to have a quick look and uh, have a look at it and and scrutinize it and go actually no this this could be something or it could be nothing before it goes through a full peer review process and goes into a journal publication. The problem with that is the media get hold of it and go oh look this study which was published on this uh, well it's you know anyone can publish on a preprint server really and it you know they'll take it and then they'll put out this whole message and and then you're you're now in a world of uh media spiraling and that's different to kind of scientific um going viral as it were scientifically yeah information it just feels like 
takes more and more of a discerning eye than ever, especially in a world where, to your point, like just media narratives are the narratives and they will kind of very parasitically take whatever that narrative is, self-perpetuating though it is, and, and perpetuate it and then just move on to the next thing without any regard for the ramifications of doing that. And yeah, and this is, we're talking about human lives here. So it's, it's pretty integral to, to have that discerning eye. So that's why I'm really glad and appreciative that you came on here to, to discuss those things because not everybody has access to somebody like you with your information. So I really appreciate your time on this. No, no, that, it, it's been good. It's been fun, actually, uh, even though it's not discussing the most less positive topic. <laughs> no, you know, but it's, it's it's been therapeutic, honestly. Like, it's nice to hear this and to be able to, like, just get this out to people to get that good information out there in a sea of misinformation and kind of cynical fear-mongering. So I appreciate that. But before I wrap it up, do you, you want to point people toward, like, any anything you got for you or just information resources for something like this, too? Uh, oh, right, yeah, no, I see... I tell you what, so information resources, I tend, I have a whole ton of them, right? I've got a whole different, I've got a whole folder on my phone with about 25 different sites, but most of the main journals have a COVID repository now. The issue is it depends on how, what type, what level of information you want. Gotcha. Um, And if you're just a lay person and you just need a bit of information on it, then I think WHO website's pretty good. Yes, look, they haven't got everything right, right from the start, but... Nobody got everything right from the start. Even the countries no. that are doing the best in the whole world, they're still struggling. Nobody's like, nobody's beaten this thing and it's done and dusted and everything's back to normal. They're still struggling in some way or form. No country's nailing this. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's I mean, nailing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you either nail the coronavirus stuff, but then affect the economy or, well, yeah. even the countries that don't nail the, you know, that, that sort of try and drive the economy, their, their, the economy has gone dipped because because they haven't managed the COVID piece properly. But there are some countries that have just done exceptionally well. You know, I talked about going hard and going fast and going early. Yeah. Um, New Zealand was is probably the one example that I... New Zealand, I think Korea did a good job. Vietnam, off the top of my head, I believe, did an excellent job. So they knew what they were doing. But of course, they're still struggling. There's, it's not It's not like everything is totally back to normal. Uh, it's but yeah. predominantly like relative, yeah, to, to so many other but much worse situations. But I have, I mean, most of my information sources are like, I'd say, yeah, so for lay people, WHO, if you're looking at kind of regulatory stuff, i.e. kind of uh, approval of medicines, then the, the EMA, I, being based in Europe, I, that's what I look at in the US, you'll have the FDA. I do look at the FDA website every now and then, but then the Lancet okay. and El Savio. So there are places where you can go. Uh, I'm happy to send a few links out okay. to you yeah, if I can perfect. find it. There was one, I'm trying to find it now. There was one place that was essentially a dashboard of all the kind of COVID to- hot topics at the moment, but I, I don't think that's up and running again. Uh, I think it's gone down now. So, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some links. Perfect. And I'll, I'll post that with this episode, but yeah, otherwise just uh, support Man U, right? Uh, yeah, I am a United, uh, Manchester United fan, but obviously in, in this podcast, that that's uh, neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. Yeah. Um, no, but thank you again for your time. I, this has been incredibly helpful and I really do appreciate it. No problem. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Thank you all for listening. Just uh, please stay safe, practice empathy, wear a mask, be thoughtful, both to yourself and others and stay safe. Thank you again. Bye.